So our readings from Daniel chapter 12, if you're using the Church Bibles on page 899. So Daniel chapter 12, titled The End Times. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness, like the stars for ever and ever. But you, Daniel, roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there before me stood two others, one on this bank of the river and one on the opposite bank. One of them said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, How long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? The man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, lifted his right hand and his left hand towards heaven, and I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying, It will be for a time, times and half a time. When the power of the holy people has been finally broken, all these things will be completed. I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked, My Lord, what will the outcome of all this be? He replied, Go your way, Daniel, because the words are rolled up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand but those who are wise will understand. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. As for you, go your way till the end. You will rest, and then at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. Shall we pray together? Heavenly Father, these uh, words in Scripture are hard for us to understand, uh, and uh, we're very conscious of our need for your help. Please will you speak to us, uh, and please uh, will you... Help us to be those who are wise, as Daniel uh, hears about those who are wise. Help us to be those who hear your word and put it into practice, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I wonder if you know what the words on the Brazilian flag are. Anyone want to have a crack at that? You've seen it often enough on the sort of World Cup winners' uh, podium at the, uh, the Football World Cup, haven't you? But um, it is Ordem e Progresso, order and progress. Um, and uh, that is because the Brazilian Republic was founded in the 19th century at a time when people had begun to see history as itself a sort of divine thing. Now, everyone has a view of history, everyone has an understanding of what history might be, 
but there is a sort of snapshot in time represented by the Brazilian flag uh, at which people came to believe that history had its own purpose. Now, the way that comes about is uh, quite uh, convoluted. Here's a very simple explanation of it. Uh, before Christianity, cultures generally saw history as a circle. Uh, all of uh, human life, all of human experience, uh, the experience of nations even, is basically circular. Nations rise and they fall again. Uh, our years go round and round in a circle. Generations rise, generations fall. Uh, and so... Uh, people saw history as a sort of circular thing. They didn't really go anywhere, but just went round and round and round. And the human race sort of travelled round history on that wheel. But with the coming of uh, Christianity uh, into the world, uh, and with the, the sort of spread of Christian ideas around the globe, people began to understand that history was not circular, but was heading somewhere. It's right there in the Apostles' Creed, isn't it? Uh, that Jesus Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. And actually, that's an idea that uh, finds its origin in many ways in uh, Daniel chapter 12 uh, and verse 2. The clearest exposition in the Old Testament of the idea that the whole human race will rise at the end of time to be judged by God. Uh, and so, as uh, particularly civilizations in the West, but not only in the West, came to adopt Christian ways of thinking, we began to think history is not a circle, it's going somewhere. It's a straight line. We're all heading to Judgment Day. Now, in the 19th century, people who had become very used to this idea that history was going somewhere, they were beginning to get much less used to the idea that there was a God who was guiding history to a climax. Uh, and instead, what they did was begin to see history itself as the progress, as the process by which God came to realize himself or uh, by which in some way the sort of uh, mystical cogs of justice sort of worked their way. You, you, you hear it in, in, a, in uh, someone like uh, Martin Luther King Jr. who says the arc of history bends towards progress. Uh, you hear it uh, even today in the words of Sadiq Khan, who is trying to uh, defend the expansion of the ultra-low emission zone in London and says, I will be on the right side of history on this. Uh, and in the West, particularly, we have uh, come to uh, accept this idea that history is going somewhere, even while forgetting the idea that God is behind that. It's a very striking thing to me that, as far as I can tell, every single major totalitarian regime in the 20th century and the extraordinary, unprecedented body count that they hold, they all were committed to this idea of being on the right side of history. That's very much the idea at the heart of Karl Marx's thought, is that history is this process, it's heading somewhere, it's heading to this utopia for the workers, where the means of production uh, and the people who produce uh, will sort of be united and, 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 and there will be justice. Uh, and uh, that was what drove Mao, what drove Lenin and later Stalin, was this idea that they were actually bringing about the goal of history. People aren't so often aware, but this is absolutely the case, that Adolf Hitler believed a very similar thing. 
It's just that rather than it being uh, a struggle between uh, sort of the workers and then those who owned capital, uh, the struggle at the heart of history uh, was the battle between different races. Uh, and so Hitler believed that he was on the right side of history, bringing about the goal of history, which was the triumph of the Herrenrass, the, the, the master race. That idea lingers, not, not Hitler's idea particularly, although it does with some, of course, as do the, idea of Mark, the ideas of Marx. But that idea that history is itself purposive, that it is in itself heading somewhere, is very, very powerful. And it is the source of much anxiety for Christian people. Because it feels often as though progress is heading in a direction in which much of what we believe is outdated, unacceptable, belongs on the wrong side of history. So how do you understand history? How do you make sense of it? Is it really just a sort of struggle, a contest between different ideas or different groups of people in which the winners get to write the story? There's that great quote attributed to Winston Churchill, isn't there? History will be kind to me, for I intend to write it. History is written by the victors. Uh, and so the right side of history, it seems to me, is whichever side is currently winning in the battle of ideas or in much more bloody battles. Now, the book of Daniel, as we come to a conclusion, takes us to the very end of history. That's where we are uh, in uh, chapter 12 uh, and at verse 1. We've uh, seen uh, this kind of vision in chapters 10 and 11 of the sort of history of global empires through what looks like the Ford and th fourth, uh, Ford, fourth and third centuries BC. Bear in mind that when you're talking BC, the smaller the number, the closer it is. Okay, so the 4th century, the 3rd century, uh, and then in the 2nd century, this awful character, Antiochus Epiphanes, appears. He conquers all before him. Uh, he conquers the temple in Jerusalem, sacrifices a pig on the altar, the abomination that causes desolation. Uh, and yet, even in chapter 11, it seems to point past Antiochus to some greater, more terrible, more horrifying figure who will appear at the very end of time. And that's where we pick it up in chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress, such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. Some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. And this really is the climax of the whole book. This is like a bow tied around the book of Daniel uh, and saying, look, this is what it's all about. So right back in chapter one, we saw the greatest empire in the world at the time, Babylon, uh, capture Jerusalem, take off Daniel and his friends, the, the sort of cream of the crop of Jewish society, along with items from the temple, having apparently completely defeated God, uh, they're carried off into Babylon. This great empire is there, but time and again, God speaks to the emperor, Nebuchadnezzar, and shows him that he is a God who exalts the humble and subdues the proud. 
And no matter how powerful Nebuchadnezzar might be, no matter how great his empire, actually, he is a guest in God's reality. And Nebuchadnezzar himself seems to come to realize that, something that uh, his successor, uh, Belshazzar, doesn't accept. And so Babylon falls. And another empire takes its place, the Medo-Persian Empire. And again we see, in Daniel's lived experience, the triumph of God's power over the power of this next greatest empire the world has ever seen. And then in the second half of the book, when it all starts to get a bit strange, basically what Daniel is being shown is that the kingdoms that are to come long after his death, they too have power only as it is given by God, and he will raise them up and he will bring them down. And he always will have the victory. So at the heart of this book, at the heart of this sometimes very difficult book, is a very simple message. God is in control. Kingdoms will always rise and fall. But his kingdom will stand forever. So if you've been with us through the book, you'll remember in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar's vision of uh, of this statue representing four great empires and it is struck on the feet by a rock not cut out with human hands which grows to fill the world. Very clearly a prophecy pointing forward to the coming of Jesus and the growth of his kingdom which in the end brings about the disintegration of the very greatest empire the world had ever seen at that point, the Roman Empire. Which eventually bows before him in the time of Constantine. So there's this very simple message. History is not a thing that is itself divine. It is the story that God is writing. And whatever might be happening at the time, however things might look, whoever looks like they're in power, whoever might exalt themselves up against God and say, you don't have to listen to him, listen to me, The wise reader of the book of Daniel knows that however things seem, God is truly the king. History is his story. And he is writing it. It is in his book. So that he can point forward ahead of Daniel's life and with great detail tell him what is coming. Pointing even then to the time of the end. And what will happen at the time of the end? Well, there is this picture of great distress, but that finally, there is complete deliverance for God's people and a resurrection of the dead. Chapter 12, verse two, do look at it with me. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. And so the Apostles' Creed has it. Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. How do you judge the dead? You resurrect them. And then they stand before your judgment seat. And so at the end, there is this great reckoning. Everyone rises. Everyone is resurrected. No one gets to hide in the grave. 
everyone must face God. Some will rise to everlasting life and others to shame and everlasting contempt. And so Daniel is told, those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens. And those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. It's this glorious picture of people sharing in the glory of God, the lights of the heavens. But you, Daniel, roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. Now, what does that mean? He's given this great picture of, uh, of a general resurrection of the whole human race being called back out of the grave, out of the dust of the earth, uh, to face one of two possible futures. And then Daniel is told, but roll it up, seal it, put it away until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. And I think the idea is that people will run around looking to try and find what's going to happen in history. People are going to try and find what it all means. But actually, in the end, the true reality of it is hidden. And it's the picture of a very significant official document. That's this idea of a sealed up scroll. I'm I'm trying to think of a... It's a bit like... um, creating a PDF document that no one can edit. That's the point. No one can get to this scroll and change it. It's sealed. It's rolled up. Its contents are entirely stable. No one can change them. And so Daniel, perhaps like us, is rather bewildered. And he says, well, how long? When, when, when's all this going to happen? Uh, and the man says something rather enigmatic. So, um, if you've been with us, he's seeing this angel floating sort of above the Tiber, uh, and um, uh, the Tigris, rather. And um, th- this man sort of swears and says it will be for a time, times and half a time. And you can imagine Daniel scratching his head and saying, what? Because that's kind of the point. It, it will be for as long as it will be. When the power of the holy people has finally been broken, all these things will be completed. What does that mean? Well, perhaps you're like me and like Daniel, verse 8, I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked my Lord, what will the outcome of this be? And here is the angel's advice to Daniel. Go your way, Daniel, because the worlds are rolled up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. What will they understand? Well, not what's hidden from Daniel. Surely Daniel is wise. Daniel will rise for his reward in verse 13. I think it's this. They'll understand the message of the whole book of Daniel which is that the only sane way to go about life is to understand that God's kingdom is eternal and so you refuse to compromise your loyalty to God because of external circumstances, because of the kingdoms that rise and fall, the ideas and the ideologies that come and go. Don't be swayed, don't be fooled. This is God's world. This is God's story. We are guests in his reality. To be wise 
is to submit yourself to him, the living God. To be foolish is to refuse to understand. Uh, and, and, and essentially, as far as I can see it, what the angel says to Daniel is, look, this is the meaning of history. This is what's going to happen. For the rest of time, there will be those who hear the word of God and submit to it, who worship him, who love him, who live for him, who are loyal to him, even in terrible circumstances. And there will be those who believe some other story, some other narrative, and, and, and who will live as though there is some other highest good than God himself. That is going to be the way of history. Nations will come and go. Kingdoms will rise and fall. Ideas will be in fashion and out of fashion. But what really matters is how you respond to what God says about himself and his world. So the angel gives this slightly enigmatic statement from the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Okay, well, I can count to 1,290. Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days, and now I'm confused again. But this is what, in the end, the angel says to Daniel, as for you, go your way till the end. You will rest. And then at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. Daniel, don't worry too much about it. You will rest. This is God's story. You can trust God to be in control of it. All that you can do is go your way. That is live God's way. That's the message in the end of the book of Daniel. Go your way. Go to your rest and rise to receive your inheritance. And the question will be, what is that way? And what is that inheritance? That's the big question the book of Daniel leaves all of us with. If this is true, if, if, if God really is king over all kings, if, if, if he is Lord over all the nations, if history is his story, if it is his purpose that is being played out, if in the end everyone will stand before him and have to give an account for their lives and some will go, to receive an unimaginable blessedness. And some will go to terrible horror. How will you live? Is your way going to be his way or some other way? I think that's it. That, in the end, is the framework into which all of us put our lives Will I be loyal to God? Or will I allow my circumstances to persuade me that there is a better option? Another king whose loyalty will be better rewarded. In a slightly unusual move, and I want to finish this sermon by reading a psalm. Psalm 73, because I think in the end, Psalm 73 captures what Daniel is telling us, but in a very different way. Let me read it to you. I'll make a couple of comments and then we'll pray. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. 
Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I'd nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I'd spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you placed them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they're destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They're like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. It's a searingly honest account, isn't it, from Asaph? It's an extraordinary thing to have as a sort of hymn in the middle of God's hymn book in the book of Psalms, which basically starts by saying, well, I look around me and it makes no sense to be a believer at all. People who don't go God's way seem to prosper enormously. They have no restraints, and so they amass wealth, they're carefree, they live in peace. And yet the life of the believer seems so often to be one of affliction, even of punishment. And the thing that makes the difference for Asaph is in verse 17. He's troubled, he doesn't understand. And then it says, till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. And then he realizes that the ones who despise God as if God was a fantasy are themselves the ones who are fantasies, like a dream when you awake. We're guests in God's reality. We cannot continue to push him out of his world forever. There is a day of reckoning and all that will matter 
is how you relate to him. It may be that you've been struggling in your Christian life, feeling less and less as though it's delivering what you hoped. You feel pushed aside by society. You feel increasingly marginalized at work. And you think it would be so good for my career if I just let some of this stuff slip. It may be that you just look at what the world is like and you despair of the idea that there can be a good God behind it all. History seems so chaotic and so violent and the news is so depressing. We look at the world around us and we wonder, is there any point going on? And the problem is that we're short-sighted and we don't understand history. There is a day coming when there will be perfect justice, which is wonderful news for the oppressed, isn't it? It is wonderful news for those who are wronged. There will be a reckoning. And it is terrible news for those who will continue to live as if God did not belong in his creation, as though he could be ignored as though we could live, as if he didn't know, as if he didn't see, and as if he didn't care. What difference would it make to you this week to live as if that's really where reality is heading? As if that's the thing that ultimately shapes what your life will mean? That the God who strangely, mystically, invisibly guides human history, even to its very worst moment where humanity murdered its creator at the cross. And yet out of that brought life and resurrection and everlasting joy. God is working, even though we don't have the eyes to see it. But the book of Daniel, if we will let it, and perhaps if we read back through it, will show us time and again that God is in control, he can be trusted, and the only sane thing is to make your way his way. Let's pray. Father, it seems extraordinary in many ways that we should imagine that we have access to the very meaning of history. We're ordinary people with limited power. And yet you are the sovereign God who made the universe, who guides history along its course to your intended end who will bring about perfect justice, who will bring about wonderful glory for those who know and love you. Lord, we pray you'll help us to see with your eyes. We couldn't find any of this out for ourselves, but you have shown it to us, most obviously in the person of Jesus. 
and in his promises about his own return. Lord, help us to live in line with reality. Help us to shape our lives as Daniel was told to shape his and help us to be those who are found in the end to be wise, to hear your voice and to obey it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.